Hello, what is the crack and welcome to this week's Blind Buy podcast. Shout out to all my brand new listeners, mostly international buys and girls. What's the crack? Um, if you're a new listener, I'd suggest uh, you don't have to exactly go back to the very start, but I would suggest dipping into, I think we're on episode 105 or 106 now. So there's loads and loads of episodes. And I would suggest dipping back into them because they're on varied topics and this podcast isn't necessarily sequential. I had a class weekend there, did some live podcasts in Kilkenny and in Cork. They were fucking fantastic. Thank you to everyone for showing up and being sound. Some lovely fucking podcasts that I can't wait to share with you when I get the chance. Um, just a tiny plug for three gigs uh, live podcast that I have coming up next week on the 22nd uh, Sligo Sligo Live still tickets available for that and uh, please come along to that if you're in, if you're in Sligo that's going to be good crack and then the, the only other two that I'm going to give a big plug for because do you know these are almost sold out after I mentioned them um, about two weeks ago but there's a few tickets left for Dublin because you're always asking me for Dublin podcasts. So in Vicar Street on the 19th and the 24th of November, I have two live podcasts. And I think there's about 100 tickets left for each night. So go and get those if you'd like to come along to a live gig. So yeah, um, last week's podcast was about climate anxiety. I enjoyed I enjoyed doing it because like I I like a podcast where I'd been getting a lot of DMs about climate anxiety but people talking about their mental health being affected specifically by the climate so I decided I'd address it and I like I like to address queries and questions that ye give me but it's about shit that I'm currently going through as well because that means then for me just by talking to ye talking through it talking through my my feelings around it it allows me to process shit in the here and now so I did enjoy it even though a couple of people I don't know a couple of people felt felt anxious around it a a couple of people felt anxious around the fact that I'd even spoken about climate anxiety that it maybe is is a bit too raw Um, I also read out a brand new short story from my book my book, by the way, another little plug before we move on. My book of short stories, the new one, which is called Boulevard Wren, is going to be in shops on November 1st. But you can pre-order it. Um, and if you pre-order it, you will be in with a shot to get uh, a, pr- a print, a drawing that I've done, a print of a drawing that I've done that is also signed by me. And there's only so many in existence so if you pre-order my new book of short stories from eatons.ie you depending on whether they're gone already but i don't think so um you'll you'll get this exclusive print that's signed that and no one else will have and i won't be doing any more alongside getting the book uh, for the same price as it is when you buy it on november 1st you can also go to book depository um and amazon if you want but it's boulevard Ren. Brand new book of short stories. 
writing it for the past two years and holy fuck am I glad to not be writing something at the moment I'm really enjoying not having that pressure the only thing I have to worry about at the moment is doing my live gigs and doing this podcast and I won't be taking any more creative projects on I'd say until 2020 I just want to have until before Christmas I'm getting one or two days a week where if I if I have the available time I can play video games and I wasn't able to do that in a while so I'm back playing video games in my underpants and that's how I'm using my leisurely time and it's a fine time of year to be doing it because there's nothing better than a, a dark cold evening outside and firing up the Xbox it's, it's enjoyable it's the right time to be doing it you get guilty when you do it in the summer you know so this week's podcast is it's going to be a, a hot takey podcast long time listeners will know that I'm a huge fan of art I'm a huge fan of art painting the history of art trying to understand art I fucking adore art and I haven't done a podcast on art in a while and a lot of people have been asking me to to do another one we've done podcasts on one of the first podcasts was about Caravaggio it was about about the life of Caravaggio it it was a, a, a kind of a conspiracy theory that I had based on the life of Caravaggio that the reason he used so much black in his paintings is because he was trying to be a cheapskate and how that went on to influence the work of director Martin Scorsese. So there was a Caravaggio podcast. I did one on Impressionism, I believe. I did a podcast on William Hogarth. And his, his I think it was Hogarth's work. But against the backdrop of, drain, of gin overtaking early industrial revolution English society then there was a podcast on performance art I really enjoyed that one again I don't know the names of these podcasts because I give each podcast a quite a ridiculous name that has nothing to do with the title so there you go it's tradition that I, I fuck it what am I going to do if I was on if I was on radio or TV they'd make me name the things properly so fuck it I'm going to name a podcast with whatever name comes to me and if you want to find out what each podcast is about the easiest way just go on to Spotify if you go on to Spotify you flick through them and I give a tiny little synopsis in the description of each one but yeah there was a performance art podcast about a guy called Chris Burden who Chris Burden who who had his friend shoot himself has his friend shoot him in the arm in the name of art and he also nailed himself to a Volkswagen so we spoke about performance art and understanding it and understanding why it's important and why it's not just... Because modern art in particular, it, it, it's it's really exclusive. And it annoys me because a lot of mar- modern art, it's it's difficult to understand unless you're initiated into the language of art. Unless you've studied art or really put some effort into it a lot of modern art the average person just goes what the fuck are these idiots doing you know and I don't like that about modern art I'm someone who I like art to be democratised I'm 
you know, I'm a fan of, of creativity, creative expression being a part of like literally everyone's fucking life. Not this idea of only artists create art. I, I think everybody should create uh, some type of art as just part of existing. And it doesn't mean it has to be brilliant. It doesn't mean it has to go into a gallery. It doesn't even mean that it's good enough that you want to show your friend. But I do believe, based on the fact that all of us, every single fucking one of us as children, enjoyed colouring in, playing with crayons and building Lego. All of us liked had this creative, free part of ourselves that needed to... Art is beautiful on, on an individual level because ultimately what, what you're doing, right... And this can go for writing a song, painting something, knitting something, uh, crafts, you know, kind of creating something that's visual or aural or even prose whereby you're using, you know, words, but the, the words create something that's it's not just communication, it's something beyond it. It's important because... What, what what art does, what, what creative expression does, it, it allows us to process emotions that are going on inside us, right? A lot of our emotional world, whether it be fear, pain, anger, desire, fantasies, whatever, a lot of it kind of exists in the unconscious mind as this little feeling that you can't put words on and you can't visualise and you can't understand it. It's just there at the back of your head like a little insect. And art allows all of us to process it and get that out in some way, in whatever way. This is why people who, you know, who haven't gone near crayons since they were two pick up, we'll say, an adult colouring book, for instance, and they walk away from it after an hour, f- feeling energized, and feeling, you feel in a sense of internal resolution. You feel as if, as if something inside you has been resolved, and you mightn't even know what it is. It's a sense of completion, and it's just it's it's a weird thing about today's society that some of us leave that behind at about the age of five. And you're, you're kind of broken into groups of people of you're good at art and you're not good at art. So you go and do something else. Whereas I, I believe all of us should be doing something. And you can throw it into the bin at the end if you want. Do you know, get yourself some fucking Lego. If you like. If that was your buzz when you were two. Get some Lego for yourself. And make something. Whatever the fuck you want. Or get yourself some clay or marla or some paints or an instrument. And the most important thing, when you were doing that shit when you were two or three or four, you didn't care whether it was going to be good or bad. You really didn't. You are just doing it for the sake of doing it because that's how children's brains work. So try and get back to that place. You're doing it for the sake of doing not for the sake of having something good at the end. 
I mean, I, I often wonder, I, I think... Because when you're like two or three and you make a little painting or you make a little song or you make something out of Lego, naturally the child goes to the parent and says, Mammy, Mammy, Daddy, Daddy, look what I did. And I'd say it's that reaction, it's that parental reaction. Depending on that is what is, is when we as little humans decide whether or not we should continue with art or not continue with it. Yeah, yeah, because you'd want to be a right prick of a parent if you're turning around to your two-year-old or three-year-old and saying that crayon, crayon drawing is shit. I think most parents, actually, if their toddler creates anything, Lego, uh, painting, whatever the fuck, most parents are kind of just really happy and proud to see something that they created now engaging in a, in a degree of cultural expression. So most parents would just think whatever the kid does is brilliant and fuck it up onto the fridge and say fair play to you. And it could look like shit. But no parent is going to tell the child. Actually no. Um, because I know I have friends. Now no, no friend who's a parent will admit this but I do have friends whose parents like actively did if if my friend will say showed a talent for music or painting whatever the, they were actively discouraged from a young age by the parent because the parent was terrified that their child would grow up to be an artist and therefore grow up with uh, quite limited career opportunities um, because you know that's that's the case you know if, if in this world of commodification trying to make it as a fucking artist in 2019 tough going lads so a lot of parents will react badly to a child showing creative tendencies going oh fuck oh shit no I want I want them to be an accountant or to work in actuary or yeah and I know this because I do I get a lot of emails lads I get a lot of emails from ye and people just saying I, I work in finance and I really love art so much but I work in finance to please my parents and I, I'm very unhappy and I really just want to paint. I get a lot of those emails. So yeah, there would be certain parents who would actively discourage their children when they show signs of creativity but maybe not do it in a, in a nasty way. Maybe more of a... That's class... But have you seen this this ledger? Do you like do you like money? Here's a fiver. But you know, beyond parental approval of your early creative efforts, I, I think yet yeah, there's another factor. I think it's when you go to school and you start comparing yourself to other children and their creative efforts, and you go into school and you think you're enjoying your crayon you're, you're drawing with your crayons and you're enjoying your colouring in and then there's another student in the class and they're just fucking ridiculously good and then maybe the teacher gives them praise and then we decide no this isn't for me I was on the opposite I was I was the student in the class whereby when I did go in it was like wow he's good at crayons and that definitely 
reinforced uh, I don't know my confidence over the years to decide I'm going to be an adult who does art professionally do you know what I mean but yeah all of us do that for yourself if you want to do something for yourself to improve your general well-being and to give yourself a greater sense of purpose or meaning okay like because it's winter now so you're going to be spending more time indoors just do invest in something a little bit creative paints lego adult coloring book bit of poetry a fucking a model airplane whatever the fuck something that ideally doesn't involve your phone or a laptop and something that means kind of get getting your hands dirty and messy and experiencing smells of paint or smells of glue or whatever do that for yourself and notice the the sense of joy that will come over you from simply doing it and the only the only thing I'll say to you is banish the the idea of this is going to be good or bad banish that if if that is present then forget about it art should be about play same way as it was when you were a child okay so yeah this week's podcast it, it is going to be art related but specifically hi- history of art and what I want to talk about is I want to look at one or two artistic movements specifically the the painting leg of these movements and I want to show ye how how art reflects society how artistic movements reflect what whatever is going on in society at that point whether it be intentional or not um just as a way to democratize art I I don't like I don't like people being intimidated by painting I don't like people who walk into a gallery and start treating the gallery like it's a church and feeling that you look up at a painting on the wall and you go I I don't know why this painting is so great but those other people who are really smart do so I'm just going to pretend fuck that that's uh, that type of attitude has much more to do with the inflated monetary value that's been placed on art as a way to avoid tax than it has to do with actual art. All art, modern art, high art, renaissance art, whatever the fuck you want, very easily accessible by anyone um, with a set of ears and a set of eyes. So that's what I'm going to talk about this week. A few artistic movements and how they were directly influenced by the soci- how they reflect the society and politics of the time. So I, I'm going to focus on painting specifically because that's it's the one I know m- most about in this context. So there's many, many different movements and periods throughout the uh, the last thousand years, we'll say, that define specific artistic movements. And when we hear these, like I said, if you're not initiated, if you haven't studied it or taken time to learn it, when we hear these terms, we can just switch off and go, this isn't for me. Um, so what I want to try and do is democratise some of these movements 
and understand why why they're fucking class and why what I really want to do is explain how each of these movements visually reflect the culture they operated in. Um, what, what this podcast mainly will be about a movement called Rococo and a movement called Neoclassicism, which were both kind of around the, the 1700s, 1800s, both centred mainly around France in particular. In order to understand Rococo, firstly, I'm going to give a brief mention to what preceded Roco- the Rococo, Rococo era. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Baroque period. Now, each of these movements, Baroque, Rococo, Neoclassicism, they encapsulate loads of shit. They encapsulate crafts, um, music, theatre, architecture, painting, landscaping, design. I'm going to focus on painting because painting tended to be, at that time, painting Painting would have been the, the most important. Painting in, in the 1600s, 1700s was truly seen as, as something really magical and spiritual in a way that sculpture was as well sculpture was too but painting in particular more so than architecture or design painting was seen as a spiritual magic it was seen as I mean you have to remember lads alright so let's let's just go Baroque okay 16 fucking hundreds Europe like the average human being, we, we live in a media-saturated society. So you and I are bombarded non-stop with 2D images of 3D things. Like, we take it for granted. Like, the 20th century or the, and the 21st century. We see video, photographs, illustrations, cartoons, non-stop. That's our life. So... You know, right now we inhabit a world that's almost the exact opposite of someone in the 1600s. You know, we have a compartmentalised reality where we have our online reality, where we live kind of virtually in a screen, and then our everyday actual reality. But you need to step back into a fucking society where people didn't see pictures very often. Like, they're... There wasn't newspapers in the 1600s. 1600s, I believe, it, it would have been... It was after the printing press. So, the emerging middle classes and stuff would have had access to the odd print. But most people... You wouldn't come across posters or images or anything, really. Maybe once a month if you were fucking lucky. So... Visual culture wasn't a huge part. Depending on the church you went to. If you were a peasant. um, If you were lucky. Maybe your church had one or two paintings. That represented. uh, A a religious fucking thing. But. Often. People would have encountered folk art. 
And by which I mean folk art is that it, it wouldn't have been seen as high art. It would have been more design. Take, for instance, uh, England in the 1600s. Like, you know, we don't seem to have this tradition in Ireland. I don't know why. Maybe we did and we just got rid of it when we got rid of the Brits. But if, if you go around England, especially around the villages, do you know the way their pubs have mad names like uh, the King's Head or the Dog and Duck or the Fox and Hound, right? And all the English pubs are called that and you're wondering, what, what the fuck, what are the Brits doing calling their pubs these things? Like, we, we just have like O'Riordans and Sons. We, we, we name our pubs after family names. But in England... The dog and duck and the, the horse and... We have the horse and hound, actually, in Limerick. We do... Yes, we do actually have this in Ireland. In Limerick, we have a pub called the horse and hound. So, yes, it did exist here, too. Obviously. So... Yeah, let's just take the horse and hound in Limerick as an example. Now, I don't know how old the horse and hound is, but in Britain, you will have pubs that will go back hundreds and hundreds of years. So, the reason the Brits would call their pub the dog and duck or the horse and hound is people couldn't read like in 1400s, 1500s, 1600s people lived at home and if you had any bit of money and you went travelling you'd stay at an inn or a tavern or you might go for a pint in a pub or whatever and these were the conduits between villages where people would visit Okay, but people couldn't read so, what it would mean is that if you were asking for directions, because people could obviously they could communicate with words, but most people couldn't read, you'd say, where, where's the nearest tavern? And you'd say to the person, giving directions, go into that village over there, and you're going to find a building, and on the front of it, there's a little painting of a dog and a duck. And that then becomes known as the dog and duck, because the dog and duck didn't have the words dog and duck outside it, because in the 1600s, most people couldn't read. So you have, even today in Limerick, the horse and hound. It says the horse and hound, but there's also a little painting of a horse and hound. So that's kind of where visual culture is at in the 1600s, in the Baroque period, as we call it. Um, the vast majority of people not really have an access to incredible paintings unless... You went to the dog and duck and you saw folk art, which was someone's best efforts at drawing a dog and a duck. I don't think many of these signs exist because they would have been on wood. Or if you were lucky, you went to the, you know, the chapel in your village or the cathedral might have had some art. And art was truly used as a magical type of communion with God. If you're visually starved in the culture that you live in and you see a fucking shit-hot painting of Christ up on the cross and and you don't have a TV to look at, you don't have a smartphone, that's going to knock you off your fucking socks. That's going to make you come back to church every day. To, to be, just the simplicity of seeing a, a, something so dramatic... And something so realistic on a 2D surface. When you live your entire life in 3D. That would baffle the brain. Like. The thing with art and, and painting. 
you can't teach a person how to draw or how to paint, right? You you can teach the odd little technique or whatever, but ultimately, in academic painting, as you call it, for someone to begin the journey of, I'm going to become somebody who is able to draw and paint, what you're learning is, is not so much techniques with your hand, but you're you're training your brain to, to see differently. You can only teach someone how to see. Okay? And the complexity of, you know, taking something in the real world, three-dimensional space, and then your brain translating that into a two-dimensional flat surface, like, that's fucking huge. Now, for us, in our media-saturated society, where we exist alongside two-dimensional images the whole time, it's not that much of a great leap for us. You know, to, 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 like right now, you can fucking take out your phone right now and you can take a selfie and it's like, you know, you look into the mirror and essentially the mirror is a 3D reflection. So it's still 3D. Or you go to your, go to your friend and there they exist in real life, three dimensions. And then you whip out your phone, you take a photograph, boom, two seconds, they're translated to a two-dimensional flat surface. Okay with perspective, with, like, to someone in the 1600s, that's a massive leap. That is a huge fucking leap. Our visual culture allows us to access the 3D to 2D journey very easily and quite often. Someone in the 1600s, not a chance. That's why things like perspective needed to be discovered. Perspective simply being... That thing in the... Like... It's the Father Ted thing, right? Perspective start... We, we, we only start seeing perspective in paintings. And this is well before the Baroque period that I'm talking about now. I'm talking 1600s. We only started seeing perspective in paintings. In the 1100s. The 1200s. With artists like Giotto and Paolo Uccello. And simply perspective was... I, th- I think it was Paolo Uccello. Had a painting of a battle around 1210 and he had the genius idea of I'm going to paint the trees in the background smaller and when they're smaller they will look far away and Paolo Uccello did that in the 1200s and that was like it was it was like the the internet being discovered like it was fucking huge because if you look at cave paintings that could be 30,000 years old they're very flat, two-dimensional images, but you don't have perspective. You don't have something like as complex as three-dimensional distance existing on a flat surface. You don't see that in cave paintings. You start to see that in the 1100s, 1200s with Paolo Uccello and early, what I call them, Byzantine painters. So anyway, back to the fucking Baroque period, the 1600s. So... Yeah, that, what was I getting onto? I was trying to explain how painting is a religious, spiritual, genuine type of magic to the average person in the 1600s. Not just to the average person, to the painter themselves, to the painter's patron, to kings, to queens, to fucking merchants. Painting is a true magic. And if you possess the gift and ability to paint great pictures, you are seen as possessing a type of magic which at the time is is not it's a gift it's where we get the term fucking gift from or genius or enlightened it's it's god is traveling through the fucking artist that's what people genuinely believed at the time 
So what Baroque painting is, and Baroque painting, it'd be one of my favourite types of painting, to be honest. Before the Baroque period of the 1600s, we had the Renaissance. Okay, now the Renaissance you'd be quite familiar with. Very quickly, what was the Renaissance? It was when when Western European culture left the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages and certain painters and artists and scientists started to rediscover ideas from... Uh, it was a renaissance of Greek and Roman ideas. They started to look at the sculptures the Greeks and the Romans were doing and going, fuck, that was class, let's have a crack at that again because this medie- medieval art is fucking terrible. Like Giotto in the 1100s and Paolo Uccello, like they you know, represented perspective, but art of the Byzantine period in 1100, 1200, 1300, it's really shit. There, there isn't perspective. It's, there's not a lot of skill at all. It really was a time of intellectual poverty, do you know? But the Renaissance, it was the rebirth of classical ideas, blah, blah, blah. We come Out of this, we get the likes of Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Donatello, the turtles, right? The real important painters. But Baroque comes after the Renaissance. And Baroque, it takes, like, everything the Renaissance painters, the confidence that the Renaissance painters, that, like, the huge advancement in Renaissance painting with the perspective, shading, colour theory, all this stuff, fucking the use of oil paint. We see this absolutely flourishing in the 1600s with Baroque painting. But what is Baroque painting? So, in order to understand Baroque painting, you need to understand Europe of the 1600s. And a massive thing that had happened in the 1500s, obviously, uh, the age of discovery, let's not call it that, the age of brutal colonisation of people who happened to live in fucking... North and South America who are eradicated. Let's not say the age of discovery, please. Uh, that's my Western brain. But that and also Protestantism. The Protestant Reformation happens in the 15 fucking hundreds, right? And the the whole... The thing with the Renaissance is that you had wealthy patrons, Florentine cunts from Italy, who had a lot of money and they became patrons of the arts and they would basically give loads of money to paint, uh, artists and painters to go paint a brilliant fucking painting there of Holy Mary, will you? And then I'll get into heaven, right? And the Pope will think I'm class. And and that was the deal. It's like, if you were wealthy in the Renaissance, if you had a load of money, you filled... You, you gave Michelangelo and Leonardo and Donatello, you gave them loads of money to paint religious things. And because the Catholic Church at the time was so corrupt, and there was a thing within Catholicism called indulgences, whereby the church had gone so far fucking removed from the ideas of Christ 1,500 years previously that Catholics in, in the 1500s were like, I can buy my way to heaven. Because you have to... It wasn't like today where most people are like, look, this this God business is probably bullshit. Heaven is probably bullshit. Back then, people really believed it. Really and truly believed it. And believed that artists were a type of... 
that they believed that God moved and Jesus moved through the fucking artist and that's how they had this ability to create these amazing 2D representations of real life and these biblical scenes, alright? So, wealthy people were giving money to artists uh, to create as much religious art as possible, to make it as beautiful as possible, to adore and worship and grace not only God and Christ, but also to win favour with the fucking, the popes and the cardinals who had the real power. Okay, so it was a bit of that too. So, Renaissance art became quite theatrical, quite emotional, epic. You know, most definitely it became fucking epic, these huge paintings that depicted things from the Garden of Eden, you know, the Sistine fucking chapel, lads, God and Adam, you know, Michelangelo's Sistine chapel, it became epic, uh, dramatic, fucking Steven Spielberg, Michael Bay, carry on, and then the Protestant Reformation happens in the 1500s, and the whole shtick with the Protestant Reformation is that Protestantism came about, quite simply, because... It was one chapel, Martin Luther, just going, the Catholic Church is, is, is after fucking running away with itself. They're, the popes and cardinals are having gangbangs, which they were. Their st- popes are starting wars. The rich people can buy their way into heaven. They're spending all this money on fucking art. It's Catholicism, and Christianity has become this overindulgent, opulent, corrupt, ridiculous perversion of Christ's teachings. And anyone who subscribed to that idea, who were protesting the irrationality and silliness of where Christianity and Catholicism was, anyone who protested that became a Protestant. Okay, they were protesting it. And from Protestantism, you get like Lutheranism, and fucking Calvinism, but at the core of Lutherism and Calvinism is they reject everything that Catholicism was doing, in particular the visual extravagance of Catholicism. So Protestant churches, you know, you know, like churches were fucking like full of this gorgeous fucking art with gold and jewels and giant windows and to let God's light in and and they were very expensive affairs that were supposed to bring about awe, shock and beauty to the congregation, right? So artists were fucking, artists, architects, sculptures were flying it during the Renaissance, essentially building, uh, using art to create fucking power so that the average person goes in, walks into, the, the person who's uh, the only art they see is a fucking dog and a duck in a pub walks into a cathedral and goes wow this is fucking amazing this is so beyond anything I can even imagine it must be the work of God and therefore you have power so Protestantism was like fuck that shit if the Catholics have these giant expensive churches where all they give a fuck about is showing off and bling and gold then our churches are going to be the exact opposite Protestant churches became a really, <clears throat> a really boring grey box with pews, with very little art, very little windows, just a very simple church. Their diets became simple. Like, 
I, this is probably going a few hundred years more, but I'm pretty sure Protestants invented cornflakes as a way to stop wanking. Um, but basically, Protestantism became about visual simplicity, austerity, pairing things back, abstaining from pleasure, okay? Abstain from fucking sex, abstain from overeating, abstain from drinking too much, and abstain from the visual stimulation of beautiful fucking art the visual stimulation of epic art this was seen as uh, an indulgence and showing off in the same way that it was a sin essentially within protestantism so what baroque art is baroque art starts to go okay so the protestants are now rebelling against the excesses of the visual excesses of catholicism so what baroque art is is it's Catholic funding funded art kind of turning the level up five times as much. So Baroque art is fucking fantastic. Some of my favourite artists are Baroque artists operating in the 1600s. Caravaggio, uh, Velasquez, Rembrandt. Some of the finest fucking paintings ever created. Okay? Um, and this is Baroque art. It's it's an aggressive response to Protestant austerity and minimalism. If the Protestants want to worship in a fucking box with one window, then we're going to create epic paintings of religious scenes way better than the Renaissance carry on. We're going to bring a degree of realism to it and really make them colourful and brilliant. With the exception of Caravaggio, of course, like I mentioned on the previous podcast, Caravaggio, as a Baroque painter, did not use a lot of colour because to use colour is to spend a lot of money. Pigments were expensive. So Caravaggio, 90% of his paintings are black, but then with a single light down the middle where the colour is centred around the middle with these giant paintings. Caravaggio was also a criminal and a murderer. My personal theory, I think Caravaggio was taking a commission for 10 grand spending 500 quid on paint black is one of the cheapest paints going and I think he was saving money and then spending the rest on fucking hookers and drink alright but the importance of Caravaggio is like I said earlier okay you can't teach someone how to paint you can only teach someone how to see by which I mean, before you learn how to see as a painter, when you look at a field, language gets in the way of seeing. You go, grass is green, therefore the field is green. But a painter knows, no, today that field might be purple, depending on the light of the sun. So to become a painter and become an artist, you have to train your brain to move beyond language and to see things as they actually are. And you remove, grass is green, roads are black. Do you know what I mean? Caravaggio and not just Caravaggio Baroque painting in general it not only had these incredibly dramatic emotion filled biblical scenes it from an academic and technical point of view it's some of the some of the fucking most amazing oil paintings you'll ever see where real human models were used Uh, Caravaggio would have been the rebel because what Caravaggio would do is be, because he lived a life of vice 
and he was hanging out with crooks and criminals and prostitutes, sex workers, sorry. Um, what you had is, he used to get in a lot of trouble because he would get like, some lad he'd been on the fucking, on the lash with for two weeks who stinks of whiskey and Caravaggio would get him to pose to be Christ and he'd paint his dirty fingernails and at the time some people were like, you're painting Christ a little bit too human there. I, I don't think Christ would have looked like he had a three day fucking hangover Caravaggio. But that is, is, it's the real, it's the birth of fucking realism. It's the birth of grittiness. Do you know? Rembrandt, incredible fucking painter, did some of the most amazing self-portraits you'll ever see. Velasquez, similarly. But these were Baroque painters. And, like I said, Baroque was responding to Protestant austerity and minimalism. So what I, what I want to get on to... Fuck, we'll do an ocarina pause. 40 minutes in. Ocarina pause. All right. Uh, an advert for something you didn't need probably went in. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There. Support from this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. I was talking there about patrons of the arts, okay? You can be the patron of my art if you so choose. If you met me in real life, would you would you have a pint with me? Would you have a coffee with me? Would you buy me that pint? Well, you can do that once a month, all right? Uh, this is what keeps the podcast going. The reason I'm always pushing for the Patreon every single week is some people come and some people go, so I have to keep pushing at it. Uh, please, if you can afford it and you li- like the podcast, you're enjoying it, sign up to the Patreon page and give me the price of a pint once a month. Uh, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast alright if you can't afford it you don't have to it's grand also like the podcast subscribe to the podcast leave a review of the podcast share the podcast with friends share it on twitter on facebook or just tell someone about it this all helps me yart okay so we're talking about Baroque 1600s and Baroque was incredible. It was fucking amazing. Theatrical, emotional, epic, but most importantly, damn fine fucking academic art. Incredible 
technical skill, ability, use of paint, use of colour. Real fucking good art. Okay? And that's the 1600s. So let's start going to the 1700s. Baroque starts to turn into, in France in particular, a new type of art called Rococo. Rococo, lads, if you don't mind me saying, is fucking shit. Rococo, in my opinion, it's one of the worst periods of visual art, of painting, uh, in in the fucking... in the last uh, thousand years. It, It really was. And it came from Baroque painting. And the problem with Rococo is... It took, if Baroque, like I said, was about drama, emotion, uh, epic, all these things, theatre, it took all that shit, but then it didn't take the realism, it didn't take the idealism, it didn't take the, the technical skill, the paint, the ability, it discarded that and just hung on to the the kind of the emotional elements. I'll, I'll tell you if you want to see the closest transition. So Baroque is mid two thousands HBO TV box sets. Rococo is Netflix. So if you look at, we had a golden age of television in the mid-2000s. We had The Sopranos, we had Oz, we had The Wire, Six Feet Under, right? This huge explosion in the 2000s, mainly centred around the channel HBO, where all of a sudden, television was on par, if not if not more, if not having more integrity than cinema for the first time ever. Like, before HBO, good shit. Like, films that told amazing stories, that were technically brilliant, that fucking touched on the human condition. This only happened in the cinema. Like, the the work of Martin Scorsese, something like Taxi Driver, who he himself explicitly was influenced by Caravaggio, and he'll be the first one to say it. HBO in the mid-2000s, lads, was Baroque. It had all the epic drama and cinematography of like Scorsese but also the gritty realism uh, amazing writing and a commentary on the human condition and this is present in like I said Sopranos The Wire uh, fucking Six Feet Under Oz all this but then Netflix comes along the thing about Netflix right 90% of everything on Netflix is fucking shit what Netflix did is Netflix borrowed, so Netflix has box set television, and, and you know, Netflix does come out with some original series, and they're good, right, they're fucking great, but 90% of it is fucking shit, and what they've done is they took the feeling of mid-2000s box sets, they took the cinematography, the use of soundtracks, the use of lighting, the fact that it feels like cinema, yet it's long, episodic content. They took all these beats from mid-2000 HBO box sets, 
but then started rolling them out in a cookie-cutter format as Netflix original content. But what they don't have, quality of writing, quality of acting, they don't comment upon the human condition in a deep way. Not all, but a lot. Because Netflix churns it out. So that right there is the difference between Barack and Rococo. So Rococo comes about in the 1700s. So if Barack reflects a society that is openly rebelling in glorious fashion against the minimalism and austerity of Protestantism, Rococo starts to represent... It stands for fucking nothing. Rococo represents opulence and rich fuckers wanking off into bushes. Like... The most telling thing about Rococo is that the name means nothing. It 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 truly means nothing. There was another French word called Raquel or something like that that had something to do with art that looked like that was based on seashells. But Rococo means nothing. It's a made up word. It's like the word selfie. Um, before I continue, if you're, because I'm conscious, I'm I'm trying to do a visual a visual art. Uh, kind of stream of consciousness chat here but it's it's happening in a pure, purely oral format so if you want to get an idea of, of what 1700s Rococo art looked like before I continue on to it I'll, I'll tell you the most famous Rococo painting and you most definitely have seen this I guarantee you know it because it, it would be one of the most famous paintings in the world and get a look at it and then I'll explain to you why it's shit uh Fragonard, so Jean Fragonard, F-R-A-G-O-N-A-R-D, and the painting is called The Swing, Fragonard's The Swing, that would be the quintessential Rococo painting, so because this podcast is about how visual art and painting reflects the society that it comes from, let's take a look at the post-Baroque society that Rococo flourishes in. So, we spoke about the emergence of Protestantism, um, but also the the age of brutal, quote-unquote the age of discovery, the age of brutal colonialism. Okay, so, let's focus on France. France is a, a major colonial power. France, by the 1600s, 1700s, has stretched its fingers outward throughout the world taken big chunks of Africa the Middle East fucking Canada the West Indies down around South America basically the 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 world that Rococo painting comes into it's colonialism which is essentially like in European countries there's always like the monarchy and the papacy and nobles and shit like that, they were always wealthy. There was always a class of incredibly wealthy people and then peasants underneath. But colonialism uh, brought forward a, a new level of wealth, an unseen level of wealth. Because colonialism at its root, what it is, it's the brutal, vicious extraction of wealth and resources from colonised lands and then transferring those wealth and resources to European countries which essentially makes 
the clergy and the monarchy and the fucking what do you call them the posh cunts that aren't monarch the, the, the elites it, it makes them incredibly wealthy so in France 1600s 1700s let's start with the king Louis the 14th because it kind of starts with him Louis the 14th becomes disgustingly wealthy and so do the nobles they become a level of wealth unseen because of colonialism because quite simply let a lot of gold a lot of resources they're just robbing from countries far far bigger than France so it's the roots of, of, of the privileges that you and I enjoy today you know you and I live like Louis the Fourteenth did in the 1600s just as a given because of how we as a society still to this day exploit and extract resources from countries that we take it from but anyway so Louis the fucking 14th um, he's an absolute monarch right he, he's, he's pure and utter I am fucking king and that is it and a king can do whatever the fuck they want and a king is entitled to whatever they want so Louis the 14th France if you're if you're if you don't have any money if you're a peasant in France under Louis the 14th then you don't have a particularly good life because Louis the 14th is just looking out for Louis and importantly his nobles because even though a king has as we've learned from King John you know with the Magna Carta a king can be as much of a prick as he wants and have as much money as he wants but you have to look after your nobles but what happens is Louis the 14th was he was king of France for 74 years and he died at 76 so he was king of France since he was two longest ever king of any fucking European nation so Louis the 14th um very entitled aristocratic but what he did right and, and he was very much about centralized power that France should be run from one place and one place in particular. In particular for Louis, it was the Palace of Versailles. And the Palace of Versailles was this gigantic aristocratic compound of utter royalty with very high walls. And, you know, it was where the 1% lived. They lived like billionaires and everything outside the Palace of Versailles did not live like that. And what Louis did too is, so previously you'd have had, you know, French nobility, dukes, fucking, I don't even know the language those they use, but dukes and whatever the fuck, other types of royalty that aren't king or queen, all these rich cousins and whatever. This is, you know, I'm glad I know fuck all about monarchies. This is the opposite of British people not knowing anything about colonialism or French people not knowing. I know fuck all about monarchy. So the king and other wealthy people who are also royal would have previously lived in duchies. Is that what they call them? They'd have been all over France. Okay? In different parts. Normandy, Avignon, whatever the fuck. But Louis goes, lads... I want all my nobles in the same place. So he actively, throughout his uh, kingship, in 74 years or whatever it was, encourages all the nob- nobles to move to the, to the Palace of Versailles. They start abandoning their lands as such, you know, having absentee landlords. So now you have, by the time of Louis XIV's death, 
this ridiculous amount of wealth concentrated only around the Palace of Versailles and it becomes completely centralised politically, economically and culturally. So Rococo starts really, it's, it's with Louis XIV's fucking death and then Louis XV comes along. Louis Fifteenth becomes king at the age of five. He was Louis XIV's grandson. He becomes regent at the age of five. A regent is... It's, it's when you're officially like king or queen, but like you're too young to run the country. So some, someone else, some duke was effectively ruling while uh, Louis XV was shit in his pants. So when Louis XV becomes 13 years of age, then he's king of France. So Rococo begins with him because Louis XV... Now, the other thing as well that's actually very important is... So Louis XV there, right? So he gets... He's regent from the age, from the age of 5 to 13. And <clears throat> that's almost a decade where there's no king as such. Uh, instead, this duke or whatever has taken over responsibility. So what happens during this decade period... His granddad, Louis XIV, was this absolute monarch. But you've ten years with no king. So a lot of the cultural focus and power shifts more to the aristocrats that are hanging around the palace instead of one king. And that there, I, I think, that's like the birth of Rococo right there. But then Louis XV becomes 13 and he becomes king. And then continues on the opulent centralized traditions of his granddad where everything is focused around a small amount of incredibly rich dickheads in the planet in the palace of versailles who the walls get higher and they slowly they haven't a clue what's going on in the rest of france and they have too much money and all the gold is coming in from africa and from the west indies and they live lives of wealth so extreme that it's it's meaningless wealth. And taking it back to that painting that I spoke about, Fragonard, The Swing. Rococo art is this highly decorative, unrealistic shite that it doesn't reflect like anything to do with the human condition. It's Rococo art is is like it's in it's in influencers Instagram. It reflects only this m- kind of make believe life of romantic excess that's only experienced by a s- the small degree of royalty in France. It has lost all connection with humility, the human condition, real people's lives, or even the humility of religion. Rococo art is notably, and it's quite strange for art around the 1600s, there's no religious connotations because at that time, they'd gone beyond that. This was the time of libertinism. It's it's like... Rococo art, it, it's... It's influencer culture. It's... Do you know that weird period in rap music... Late 90s after Tupac and Biggie got shot. Late 90s, 2000s before the recession. When rap music became obsessed with bling culture. And all rappers rapped about was...
popping bottles of crystal and how many gold chains they have. Rococo was bling. It was meaningless, hedonistic kind of scenes of the opulent lives that the rich people in the plan- in the palace of, of Versailles lived and it didn't reflect at all any type of reality and like I said taking it back to Barack I mean you can make the argument of religious scenes similarly are also a, a level of fantasy a lot of Caravaggio's paintings are fantasy they're very dramatic you know the, the Barack paintings now 100 years previously lots of drama biblical scenes that never happened so yes it's still fantasy Focusing not on excess, but uh, penance, pain, suffering. Rococo, there's no penance or pain in Rococo. Instead, it's excesses. You know, Fragonard's The Swing. This, you know, incredibly stylized posh bird with a beehive fucking hair on a swing and her lover on the ground in this idyllic garden. That's what Rococo was. But what, what makes Rococo shit is... It had abandoned all academic principles of art. So, what I mean is, in Baroque art, at least Caravaggio was painting real models. He was painting real things. He was using the human eye to translate 3D into a two-dimensional space. Rococo wasn't like that. If you look at how the trees are painted in Fragonard's painting, those trees never existed in real life. The artist didn't sit down and look at a tree and try and translate that onto a page. They didn't reflect and absorb the beauty and randomness of nature. You're, what, what you're seeing instead is someone painting a garden from memory. Look at how, how little... Of, the, the leaves on the trees, they're not real leaves. They're just a, a technique stubbling on the canvas. Overly, even like there's slight references to Rene- like in the Renaissance, you'd reference back to Greek and Roman art. You see that sometimes in fucking Rococo painting, but what they're referencing is what are those angels called with their babies? Cherubs, a lot of uh, cherubs and Cupid shit, and. But most of all, it's it, they're they're just bad paintings. It's it's leans much more towards decoration than it does fine art. Sometimes the people in the paintings may not have even existed. They could have been people that were simply drawn from memory rather than a person who posed. So it's it's a period of art where it's frivolity, bling decorative shit is placed far far above anything else to do with art so that's why it's kind of it's crappy art when you compare it to what has gone before and what comes afterwards but most offensive of all about Rococo painting is this is a time when you know we're on to Louis the fucking 15th at this stage and then Louis the 16th like it's before the French Revolution. So, the upper classes are living in the Palace of Versailles in this incredible opulence, absorbing in the excesses of, their, of the colonies. And meanwhile, 
the people outside the high walls, the regular people of France, are really suffering. You know, France has one or two bad years with tax, or sorry, with uh, crops and shit like that. So they start introducing taxes, but the taxes only tax the poor and don't tax the rich. So you have a, a society that's ready to fucking crumble, that's ready to boil over, and ready for a fucking revolution but meanwhile all the rich people are in the palace of Versailles and the art that is being that they're commissioning that they're asking for that they're that they're asking to be created from it's it's instagram influencer shit it says nothing there's no uh, greater meaning behind it it's it's just like someone with a photograph of their latte and a perfect sunlight coming in it's it's not real it's it's reality television. E- everything today that you can look at in culture that's all it's only about aesthetics and image and making other people feel like shit. Like that that's like influencer culture, I understand it's fine and people like to follow influencers, but ultimately what it's about is it's bragging about a fake life that you have in order and and we watch it and we think we feel inspired but we don't we we just feel uh it's someone else just reminding you that they're living a better life than you are and we try and aspire to it but ultimately it brings our mood down that's what rococo art was um and it became gaudy and highly decorative and bling someone with too much money and no taste all of that shit, you trace it right back, the roots of it, to Rococo. You look at how Donald Trump, you look at Donald Trump's uh, living quarters and Trump Towers, and you look at the spaces that Donald Trump decorates for himself in his own house. White walls with just this ridiculous gold uh, all over the place. Unwittingly, Trump Trump's fucking style that he prefers, it's, it, its roots can be traced to Rococo. He doesn't have a fucking clue about that, but it, it's the signifier of meaningless opulence and a libertine lifestyle. Libertines at the time, it was a culture in the 1700s, which was, again, based in France. I'll do a separate podcast on libertinism, but it was just rich little shits going, I'm going to dedicate my life only to the pleasures of the senses. Only to pleasures of the senses. Uh, and that's what Rococo is. It's it's Rococo is cocaine. Rococo is a rich person at a party doing the best cocaine they can find and talking fucking shit. That's what Rococo is. And it reflects, like I said, France at the time, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Fifteenth, like Louis the Fourteenth. Like I said, he was the one who who was like took this colonial wealth and said let's everyone with money live in the planet's palace of Versailles by the time it gets to Louis XV who was made king at the age of five he has no context for anything other than that so it's a true meaninglessness and I don't want to sound excessively mean on Rococo art like artists like Fragonard or Watteau like all they're doing is like an artist has to earn a living and an artist in the 1600s they have to paint what their fucking patron is asking them for 
So Baroque painters were mostly being commissioned by the church or people who wanted to impress the church and they were looking for I need epic biblical scenes with incredible technical ability because people will associate your technical ability with a spirituality right Rococo wasn't like that Rococo was very dull rich people who lived an existence of only indulgence with zero experience of suffering hardship or regular people and they were now doing the commissioning and they're going to talented artists like Watteau and Fragonard and they're saying just fucking paint a paint I'd say they sat down with Fragonard and Watteau and said last week uh, me and the lads went to the meadow in the palace of Versailles and we had a fucking huge orgy and got pissed drunk and then someone someone did a shit into the lake and then we killed a swan with a rock and then we ki- then we killed a servant ha 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 paint that here's 10 grand that would have been rococo so these talented artists w- when your clients are are Oh, in that way and don't have any desire for realism or anything like that the painter is just simply going to go well this fucking idiot who's pissed all the time he, he doesn't he doesn't want me to go outside and paint a real tree so I'm going to paint trees from my imagination and I'm going to paint skies from my imagination and the leaves and the trees are not going to be real leaves they'll just be daubs of my brush and I paint him and his friends just wanking each other off grand and you get what you pay for so that's why Rococo is the way it is it was a small number of fucking dopes with too much of everything doing the commissioning and ultimately the, the great failing of Rococo art and painting is like I said there because of who was commissioning it it was truly blind to the actual realities of French society and not only blind but like like it flew in the face of the realities of French society French society if you weren't one of the incredibly rich people living in the palace of Versailles or Versailles you were living in serious hardship living in poverty not only living in poverty but experiencing quite harsh taxes while the rich are not get, not getting taxed at all they're inventing a, uh, they're living an opulent lifestyles of non-stop partying and reflecting this in their shit art so i mean again to draw a modern analog and i, I do think this if you look at elements of our culture now like uh let's just take influencer culture again the average influencer with their daily Instagram posts of their unrealistic body that they've changed with Photoshop and their lifestyle that doesn't exist of continual partying and like there's a guy on Instagram called Dan Bilzerian who is a multi-millionaire and all he does is take photographs all day on yachts and swimming pools with loads of gorgeous models and it's completely fake but 
like 13 year old boys follow this Dan Bilzerian fella to look at his unrealistic non-stop sex party and lifestyle on Instagram and he's an influencer like that's Rococo but if you look at right now like okay the biggest thing that's facing us our society right now is is climate change the reality of climate change and that if we don't act it's gonna bite us in the fucking hoop you know in a hundred years assuming anyone's fucking left to look back will they view like reality tv influencer culture this blind opulent ode to consumption this visual ode to consumption that's what influencer culture is will this happening at the same time as 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 the climate is falling apart will be looked at it the same way because that's certainly what rococo was because what fucking ended rococo rococo ended when the french revolution happened when the people of france now i'm going to simplify the fuck out of this but when the people of france rose up and demanded a republic and they rose up because of the, the non-stop partying and ignorance of these aristocrats in the Palace of Versailles with the Rococo art. That just rubbed salt in the wounds of the average person in France who was just like, fuck that. We're tearing down the walls. And people, the aristocrats, were beheaded. They were given the guillotine. And that was the end of Rococo. And Rococo exists as this clueless slap snapshot as to what was really happening in French society. And the French Revolution happens in 1798, but the artistic cracks start to appear bef- like slightly before 1798 with different, different artists, uh, mainly the one that sticks out for me, an English artist who I've done a podcast on before, William Hogarth. Hogarth, I don't know where to place Hogarth, I don't know what, is he, I think realism, he's certainly not Rococo, Hogarth, interesting character, again this is happening in England, but, so Hogarth starts to paint paintings, and a series of paintings, so it's almost like, like a TV box set, of, he's reflecting the new ills that are falling upon in society because it's becoming industrialised. So Hogarth has, you know, uh, very realistic scenes, but also they're satirical. They're not... Yeah, okay, so here's the deal. You can replace William Hogarth's stuff in the ballpark of Rococo because visually, Hogarth is not about academic painting. Ho- like in, in like I said earlier with the paintings of Fragonard and, and Rococo paintings where we said the trees that are in the painting are not, not real trees they're trees from the artist's imagination like Hogarth Hogarth stuff is closer to cartoons like Rococo is it's illustration it's some of the characters in the paintings exist in the artist's mind rather than in real life they're not painting and drawing models nor was Hogarth essentially, he'd have done a couple of studies, but what Hogarth did, he took elements of Rococo aesthetic, but brought in fucking satire. Rococo did not have satire, it did not have irony, 
It was about indulgence and celebration and opulence and cluelessness. But Hogarth in England now starts to do these satirical paintings that reflect... He, he starts to bring in a moralism, probably based on... It's almost like a response to Baroque. Because Hogarth, I believe, was Protestant. So he brings in a kind of a moralism. And Hogarth's drawings, like he's got a series of paintings called... Uh, the Journey of a Rake, I think it's called. Is it The Journey of a Rake? And a rake would be... A rake... Okay, put it this way. So a rake would be an aristocrat. It'd be someone who inherited a lot of wealth. So a rake would be the type of rich prick who's in the Palace of Versailles living a continual party lifestyle. So Rococo is only reflecting the opulence of this rake's life with no consequences. But Hogarth is over in England doing these paintings that are borrow aesthetically a little bit from Rococo but he has like a series of paintings called The Journey of the Rake and it's a series of like seven paintings and it tells a story almost like a comic book and the paintings are like here's this young rich man and he inherits a fuckload of money from his dad and it's him inheriting this at a young age then painting number two is like this young rake at a party fucking pissed then painting number three is him in a brothel with a bunch of uh, sex workers around him and it, it shows his utter indulgence and this rake only cares about his own pleasure and his own uh, sensual desires and then by painting number four this rake has lost his money so now he finds uh, an older widower and marries her for her money but then he spends all that and it finishes with the rake in the well-known mental asylum in in london called bedlam and he's basically at the end of his life so hogarth has taken from the rococo style but satirically has a moral story behind it which is if you live the rococo lifestyle you'll end up a, a washed up old alcoholic which is what was happening in France, in the Palace of Versailles, but it wasn't reflected in the art. So Hogarth's doing this, okay? Then you had another chap, and the other important thing about Hogarth, Hogarth was smart, so he'd do these paintings, right? But not everyone can afford a painting. But in England and in France, you have an emerging middle class that's happening because of the Industrial Revolution, the bourgeoisie. And these are people who are new money. They would have come from poverty, but because they either bought a factory or whatever the fuck... They now have access to a bit of money and they want to now buy art. But they can't afford fucking paintings like the aristocrats have. But they can't afford prints. So Hogarth starts to get his, like, a rake's progress. Or another one he has is a, a harlot's progress. Or he has paintings like Gin Alley, which I did a podcast on. And he starts transferring these as prints. And people now can... The bourgeoisie, like middle class people in the 1700s, can start buying his fucking prints and having them in their gaffes, do you know? And he's the first one to really start doing that, to opening up his art to capitalism like that. And, in fact, copywriting, the Copyright Act, I might be wrong, but I'm nearly sure the Copyright Act in England, the first ever proper one, was brought in because people were counterfeiting Hogarth's work. So the idea of intellectual property around art legally starts with Hogarth and his prints so you're seeing this 
you're seeing the like the, the failings of Rococo reflected in the the work of Hogarth in England. You're seeing it a little bit in France too. There's a fella, uh, Chardon was his name, and what Chardon was doing is that it wasn't satirical. Like Hogarth was clearly taking a swipe at aristocrats and and saying if you live a life of opulence and ignore everything around you, life is going to come back and get you. Not even God, like. Like you're not going, not even hell or anything. It's like if you ride everything around you, drink everything around you, eat everything around you, you will eventually end up unwell. And that's what Hogarth was doing. This is not happening in Rococo art, but there was a fella called Chardon, uh, late 1700s, and he he was painting not in the Rococo style, something closer to mannerism or realism, and he was. I'll tell you what Chardin was doing. He was painting what you'd call kitchen sink, right? In the 1950s and 60s, in both America and Britain, in the theatres, this shit started coming around called kitchen sink drama, which was basically drama that centred around normal people's lives in their houses. And this happened on the theatre, but then reflected in the new technology of television in the 50s and 60s in America and England. So like EastEnders. You know, what the fuck is EastEnders and Coronation Street? It's people who are working class people who have enough money to afford a television wanting to see their own lives reflected in the television. So this fella Chardon starts painting in the late 1700s while Rococo is going on and he's now reflecting the lives of ordinary bourgeoisie, middle class, emerging middle class people in France and just painting scenes of people at home people sitting at tables with food on their tables and shit like that again because the middle class is something new the idea of simply having a table with food and objects and owning things in your house that was quite aspirational because a hundred years previously you you just had a peasant class and an aristocracy and it, that's it but now by the time of the French Revolution you now have a, a middle class and this is a lot of the people who are fucking driving this revolution. So what eventually replaces Rococo? Um, like, like I said, I, I consider Hogarth and Chardon to be a little strange intermediary that signifies the end of Rococo but doesn't really reflect a new form. What replaces Rococo is a style called neoclassicism. And neoclassicism is the art of the French Revolution. The French Revolution is ideologically very much a a return to political ideas that stem from Greek and Roman culture. The Republic, which is a Greek idea, and fucking democracy. Demos Kratio, the people rule. Okay, so democracy and the Republic are the ideals of the French Revolution eradicating the monarchy. And a new way forward. The birth of fucking modernity as such. Although in fairness the French Revolution was inspired by the American Revolution you know. But neoclassicism becomes the new dominant art form. There's no more like Rococo is spat upon as this opulent signifier of the oppressive class. And now you have a new type of art. Which if the ideals and this is what I'm saying how art whether knowingly or unknowingly reflects the ideals and what's going on in society if the French Revolution is about looking back towards 
fucking Greek and Roman ideas. Neoclassicism, aesthetically, as a style of painting, looks back aesthetically to Greek and Roman painting in the way that the Renaissance did too. And Neoclassicism, um, who'd be the most prominent Neoclassicist painter? Uh, Jacques-Louis David. Um, his paintings, The Oath of the Horati or The Death of Marat. And what you see with Neoclassicism is it's really like gone are the the, the design and, and the decoration and the frivolity and drawing from imagination that you see in Rococo. Now you're back to academic painting once again. The characters that appear in neoclassical paintings are they're based on models. Um, it's not. It doesn't have the emotive drama of Baroque paintings like Caravaggio, but it does have the the realistic attention to detail and the use of paint. And they're much higher. They're technically of a much higher quality than Rococo paintings, but they're idealistic. They're quite serious. There's not a huge amount of humour in neoclassicism. Um, they use, you know, as a high level of visual metaphor. One thing that led to the rise of neoclassicism too is you have to remember, so we're talking late 1700s, early 1800s. Things open up in the world, you know. Uh, the concept of the Grand Tour. Like, okay, uh, the Hellenic islands, I think, her Hercule, wow, sorry, Herculaneum, which is an ancient Greece site, I believe, on some islands that was uh, discovered and excavated. Like archaeology becomes a thing. This is post Enlightenment, so things like archaeology become a serious thing that people do with their time. So you have fucking uh, Pompeii is discovered in Italy. And excavated, so na- and loads of books and shit, and really detailed drawings of every aspect of Pompeii are are made. So th- neoclassical artists have greater visual access, in the way that the Renaissance painters didn't, to what structures and society actually looked like in Greek and Roman times. You also had the emergence of a cultural phenomenon known as the Grand Tour, where young men. It was usually men of wealth or bourgeoisie. At the ages where you'd normally go to college, we'll say from 18 to 23, what they would do is they would go on a grand tour, which meant that they would travel certain designated points around the world that were seen as hotspots of knowledge and culture. And Herculaneum, can't pronounce it, was one. Pompeii was another. I believe... I think Cordoba, where I visit in Spain, because that was uh, an ancient Islamic caliphate, was on the list as well. But young men would travel the world and began to fetishize history. History, right, the, the, the recording and understanding and enjoyment of history is actually quite a new enough phenomenon. It's something that really comes to light with the Enlightenment of the 17 1800s. Before that, I don't know, people had too much shit going on in their lives to be worrying about what people a thousand years before what we're doing people didn't have the reverence and respect and desire to understand and preserve artifacts that starts happening 200 years ago and neoclassicism comes from that so you have the 
with the the physical, archaeological tenderness and respect that's been afforded somewhere like Pompeii, these ruins of a fucking Roman t- uh, city that was d- buried under a volcano, this careful excavation and preservation and understanding that this is important, we must not destroy it. This now happens also to the ideas that would have been present in fucking Pompeii, which were the Republic, democracy, such and such, which is driving the French Revolution. So neoclassical art starts to reflect this. And Jacques-Louis David is who you want to look at for that stuff. And, yeah, I do. I enjoy neoclassical art. I'd be more of a Baroque fan. But I'll take neoclassicism over Rococo because the paintings are a pleasure to look at. They're a little bit stifled. They're a little bit serious. Um, neoclassicism then also influences architecture. Like a lot of fucking buildings. A huge amount of um, central London is neoclassical in style. If you see any building that... Like the, the US White House, which I believe was based on the Dublin Oris and Uteron, where our president lives. Any building at the front where they have large Roman columns is built in the neoclassical style. The fucking GPO. The GPO O'Connell Street Dublin with its huge Roman pillars at the front. That that is a neoclassical style of architecture. Whereas not a lot of fucking Rococo. The Rotunda Hospital. Elements of that would have been designed in the Rococo period and, and would contain Rococo elements. It's not like the full extravagance of if you want to see like vomit inducing Rococo, you'd need to be going to France or fucking Vienna, but the Rotunda Hospital is like a stripped back Rococo, but GPO certainly the front fucking facade that's pure neoclassicism. So it's it's quite present in a lot of buildings that were built around the the eighteen hundreds, a lot of London shit like that. That's neoclassicism, the new classic. Ironically, I like to visit the British Museum a lot, you know, when I'm in London, and you have this building which is it, it, it itself is neoclassical. It's based. It's trying to look like um, an old Athenian temple, two thousand years ago. But in in the building itself is the recreation of of Greek ruins from Crete, you know. And I find that ironic that it's like the building that it's based upon is also the building that's housing it. But yeah, neoclassicism came afterwards, and just to wrap it up, that's what I'm getting at. It's like art the way paintings look the way architecture looks it's it's reflecting whatever's going on politically or sociologically for the people and it's not sometimes it happens deliberately and sometimes it doesn't sometimes it just reflects the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist is just a name that for the general feeling and mood in the air and i view neoclassicism as it's the first modernist art form to be honest it in its ideals in its relationship with things like science, um, political science, it's the, the 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 tenets of neoclassicism are human rights, uh, scientific investigation, the concept of uh, rationality, the concepts of morality. It's an idealistic art form that does try and bring about change and hope. Rococo didn't. Rococo is like, look at this very long wank I'm having and paint it. Neoclassicism was like, we can do things differently. 
because we have science and industry. And, you know, from that in 20th century, another podcast, but we get fucking modernism. We get, like, fucking futurism and shit like that, you know, which I'll do a separate podcast on. All right, that was 90 minutes. There's not more I can say. God bless, go fuck yourself. Talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.